0: In the last lesson, we did begin our new study on the great book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. And that lesson, although it was somewhat technical, as will also be this lesson, sorry to say, these two lessons are necessary in order to lay some of the basic groundwork that we need to know before we begin our actual study of the text. We learned last time why the book itself is so important. We learned who the author is other than of course God the Holy Spirit and that author we say is none other than Moses the prophet. And then we talked about why we disagree with those whoops, who teach no I don't need it. Those who teach the documentary hypothesis which is also known as the JEDP hypothesis. Many many churches out there in the world do teach this. So I thought it was important that we know about it. And then we also discussed the three possible methods of writing which may have been used by God through Moses to actually put the contents of the book of Genesis into a book form, the form that you and I have in our Bibles. And then we talked also about the dating for the book of Genesis as we looked at the three 40-year increments of Moses' life, and which one of those 40 years seems most reasonable for him to have written Genesis? And I think that was one of your homework questions, to think, you know, to think about which one you thought was the most reasonable for him to have written it. I prefer to think he wrote it during the last 40 years when he was more spiritually mature and when we know that he also wrote the other four books of the Pentateuch. And then lastly, we mentioned briefly who the recipients of the book of Genesis were. The original recipients were, of course, Israel, the people of Israel. So it was written to them in specific, and then, of course, the book was written to mankind in general. Now, in this second and final lesson on introducing ourselves to the book of Genesis, we are going to discuss the three primary purposes for the book, why God wrote the book, what were the purposes for it. Then we're going to talk about some of the special features of the book, and you can see those listed here. And then last, if we, get, if we have time left, we will look at a, an interesting comparison between the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation and the first book of the Bible, which is, of course, this book of Genesis. So that's where we're headed this morning. We'll start out, first of all, by looking at the purposes of Genesis. There seems to have been three primary purposes for God the Holy Spirit to have inspired Moses to write the book of Genesis. There was the historical purpose, there was the spiritual purpose, and then there was the theological um I'm sorry, the spiritual or theological, you could call it either. And the third purpose would be the Christological or the Christ-centered purpose. Now, God, first of all, we'll look at the historical purpose. God wanted to encourage and strengthen his chosen people of Israel in both their faith and in their trust in himself. For about 430 years, the Jewish people had suffered the terrible bondage to Egypt. They had been slaves there in Egypt for that long. They had endured, under the cruel taskmasters of the Egyptians, they had um, endured many, many hardships, many trials, many sufferings. And they even, remember, at one point in time, suffered the loss of their male children, This was at the time that baby Moses was born and when his mother saved his life uh, by putting him into that little basket and sending him down the Nile River where he was picked up by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in the house of Pharaoh. But Pharaoh had done that because he was so afraid that the Jewish people would actually overpopulate the Egyptians. So they had suffered. The Jewish people for 430 years had suffered terribly there in Egypt. Furthermore, if Genesis was written as we suggest it was during the last 40 years of Moses' life, then the Israelites had also suffered through many trials and temptations while they had wandered in the wilderness for a good many years. We don't know exactly when Moses might have written it. Maybe it was during those last 10 years, maybe it was the last 5 years, but at any rate, we know that. Probably by the time they got the book of Genesis, they had been suffering for at least maybe 20 years wandering around in the desert. So, above all else, the Jewish people needed to be encouraged and they needed to be strengthened in their faith in God. So, God inspired Moses to write the book of Genesis in order to teach Israel some very important lessons. He taught them, or wanted to teach them, through the book of Genesis that there is one and only one true and living God. He is the one who created and purposed all things. Secondly, he wanted to teach them about their roots, that she has been specially chosen. Israel has been specially chosen by God himself through Abraham, who was divinely appointed to begin the chosen line of God's elect people. And then Genesis also teaches Israel about the promised seed, with a capital S. And who is he? Right, the promised Messiah, Savior. We know, of course, from hindsight, that he is the Lord Jesus Christ. But Genesis teaches Israel that this promised seed was to be sent through the, to the world through them. They were p- to be the chosen human line through whom God would one day save the world, send the Savior. And then fourth, Genesis teaches Israel that she was to receive the promised land, I'm sure after many years of wandering around in the desert, she began to wonder, are we really going to get this promised land? Well, he assures them, yes, they are going to receive the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey, and God would be faithful to his word. He would give them this promised land. Fifthly, Genesis teaches Israel that she must believe God... She had some trouble in this, didn't she? Even after many miracles, you know, the parting of the Red Sea, and yet she would continually grumble and complain and have to be reminded over and over again that God is God and he can do anything. She needed to know she could believe God and follow him, that she needed to follow him as she was going to endeavor to overcome both her trials and her enemies once she sought to possess the promised land. And, of course, we know she had originally failed in this, didn't she? She didn't follow the advice of the two spies, and so that's why she wound up wandering around for 40 years. Now, even though these purposes for Genesis were written to uh, for Israel in particular, they were also written for mankind in general. That's why we will be studying the book of Genesis, because I don't know if any of us are jewish but most of us certainly are not but that book was written for mankind in general and this truth then takes us to the next purpose for the book of genesis which is the spiritual purpose or the theological purpose genesis teaches all men that god is the sovereign creator this is what we'll be looking at a lot next week when we get into genesis 1:1 he is the lord of the universe He's the one who created the universe. He's the supreme intelligence and power of all creation, both visible and invisible creation. Secondly, Genesis teaches all men that God created man and woman. And he did so in order to pour his grace on them. He desired, I mean, he didn't have to create anything because God is self-sufficient and he's self-existent and he's the only eternal one. He was doing fine just by himself within the Godhead. But he, des- he created man and woman because he desired to have fellowship with them. And he wants this personal fellowship for all of eternity. Aren't you glad for that or we wouldn't be here? Third, Genesis teaches mankind about the origin of sin. And death. Where did these awful things come from? Well, that's what we learn about in Genesis. We learn why they exist in this world and why they cause such misery in the lives of people. Genesis, fourthly, teaches about God's mercy and his grace if man will simply repent of his sin and turn to him. And this truth we will see over and over and over again throughout the entire book of Genesis in the lives of some of the main characters that we will be looking at such as Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Fifth, Genesis teaches the faithfulness of God and of his word. In other words, it teaches us that what God says he will do, he will do. (laughs) And what he promises, he will fulfill, regardless of what he has to do to overcome men's failings. And this we will also see repeatedly illustrated to us over and over again in the book in the failings of some of the main characters of early history. These men, you know, we put them on a pedestal, but none of them were perfect, and every one of them failed. Noah, well, Adam, of course. Noah failed. As godly of a man as he was, he failed. Abraham failed. Isaac failed. Jacob. They all failed. And we will see God's faithfulness in overcoming all of their Failures, just like he does in our lives. And sixth, Genesis teaches that all genuine believers from the ancient past to the present day and on to the future, all godly, all born again believers, will indeed receive the promised land. In other words, symbolically, that speaks of what? Heaven. We will all, um, if we're truly born again, we will receive the promised land, we will receive heaven. Then the Christological purpose for the book, or the Christ-centered purpose of the book of Genesis, is to teach all men that the promised seed, if you want to open your Bible, do you have a Bible with you today? I I mean, you don't really need it yet, but you could open up and look at Genesis 3.15 if you don't have that particular verse marked in your Bible. I promise you that you probably will (laughs) before this study is over because we'll be going to it so many times. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's the first time we have God's promise of his coming Messiah, the coming Messiah, the promised seed. It says in Genesis 3.15, this is God speaking to Satan. I will put enmity between thee, he's talking to Satan, and the woman, There he was talking about Eve. And between thy seed and her seed. And her seed speaks of the promised Messiah. The one who would come from the woman. And yet it speaks of a virgin birth because women do not have seed. (laughs) Men do. So this already is telling us of a miraculous birth. And he goes on and says, It, the seed of the serpent, shall bruise thy head. And thou shalt bruise his heel. No, it, I'm sorry, it, the seed of the woman, would bruise Satan's head. And, of course, that's what he did at the cross. That bruise to the head is speaking of a fatal blow. Satan was defeated at the cross. And Satan bruised only the Lord's heel. Even though the Lord died, it was not a fatal wound. We know he rose from the dead and he conquered death. Anyway, that is the promise to all men of the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world, who we know is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the promised one who would come from the godly line of the woman, Eve, through Seth, because Abel was killed, And then through Shem, one of the sons of Noah, and then through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and he would come from the tribe of Judah, one of Jacob's sons. Now the Bible itself is a picture book of sorts. Because, in a sense, it's a collection of portraits of one person who dominates over all the rest of the pictures. And this one, who is the central being of the, of the Scripture, from cover to cover, is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God and also the seed of the woman. So he's the Son of God and he's the Son of Man. On every single page of Scripture, he is the central figure. Every event and every person of the Bible has some connection in one way or another with God's revelation concerning his Son. The Lord Jesus himself, I'm not making this up, the Lord Jesus himself taught this truth. If you remember those of you who were with us in our Life of Christ study, he taught this to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus on the day of his glorious resurrection. Those two disciples, we don't know who they were, but they were leaving Jerusalem, very, very discouraged, very disheartened, because their master had just been crucified, and all their dreams were shattered, so they thought. However, Jesus joined them on the road, and they didn't recognize him at first. They didn't know who he was. Well, he totally amazed them by telling them, that all of this, the crucifixion, the suffering of the Messiah and the crucifixion, all that had been prophesied in the scripture. And that if they had only known the scriptures, then they would not be sad at all. What would they be doing? They'd be standing around the tomb <laughs> waiting for the resurrection and they would have already seen him rise from the dead. They would be rejoicing. They wouldn't be turning their backs on Jerusalem. They'd be in Jerusalem, and they'd be rejoicing glad—I mean, very much. And he said to them, after he told them that they wouldn't be sad because all this had been prophesied in the Scripture, he said, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? In other words, you know, you fools, if you had only known the scripture, you would have known he had to suffer. I mean, just read Isaiah chapter 53 or Psalm chapter 22. He had to suffer, but then you'd also know that the scripture teaches he would go enter into his glory. He would rise from the dead. And then following that, that rebuke, the Lord then taught himself. He taught them himself from the scripture. And I always say if there was one place I could go back in time and be, I would have loved to have been on that road when the Lord was teaching these two disciples from the scripture himself the things concerning himself. It says in Luke 24:27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So the Lord Jesus confirmed that all the scripture speaks of himself. That's what it says there. All the scriptures concern himself. And he's the one who said this. Now, this does not just mean the New Testament scriptures, because when he said this t- to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, had the New Testament been written? No, none of it had been written. So he was specifically here speaking of the, um, the Old Testament. He went through the books of Moses and the other Old Testament prophets and demonstrated how they all pointed to himself. So when we study types in Genesis, I'm not making this up. He's the one who said Moses spoke of himself. All the scripture speaks of him. So the Old Testament's not merely just an account of creation. It's not just merely an account of the fall. You know, how Adam and Eve fell into sin. It's not just an account of the flood and the history of the patriarchs and the history of Israel, nor is it merely an account of moral, religious, and ethical rules and principles and instructions. The Old Testament, which includes the book of Genesis, is a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we realize this, which I hope you will this year, When we realize this, we will find him indeed on every single page. And then the expounding of the scripture, the Old Testament, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, the Old Testament, you know, that's kind of boring. Well, not if you see Jesus on every page. It becomes very, very exciting. Instead of merely reading some dull and dreary uh, details about genealogical records, Christ comes rising out of the pages instead of reading about all these um monotonous details concerning the tabernacle well that's not in the book of genesis but let's say you were in another book uh, leviticus or something and you're reading all these details well why do we have to know what color the curtain was and why we have to know all these details well christ is in everything He's, he's there, and that just makes the Scripture so exciting. And that is what Christ meant in John five thirty nine when he said, search the Scriptures. That's what this Bible study is all about. So it doesn't matter what book you come to study here, we're always going to talk about Jesus Christ. Old Testament, yes. He's even in the creation account. He's even in, I was amazed because I'm ahead now thanks to the little birthday party, but I was amazed he's even in the Genesis 1-1. There he is, (laughs) in the word Elohim, which we'll talk about next week. So he said in John 5-39, Search the scriptures for they are they which testify of who? Of me. So we conclude that one of the three primary purposes for the book of Genesis is to introduce us for the very first time and right off the bat to the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of Christ. Okay, moving on. Now let's look at the um, part two of our outline, the, some of the special features of Genesis. First of all, it's a book of creation. Genesis is what we could call the great book of prehistoric times it is the book of creation in fact during the early history of the jewish people the title which they gave to the book of genesis was the book of the creation of the world this is the only accurate written account of prehistoric times that we have that men have because it is the only account which was written by the one who was there from the very beginning was anybody else around (laughs) When everything began in the beginning, was anyone else there before the beginning? Because it says, in the beginning, God, he actually began the beginning. Were any of you there? No, nobody was there. So it's the only account we have that was written by one who was there to give us the account of creation. Men, as essentially ignorant and limited, finite beings have no assurance at all of ever coming to the correct conclusions about the origins of things and of life if they only start with human wisdom. They can never be assured that what they're arriving at about origins is correct. In this topsy-turvy, upside-down, chaotic world that we live in, Christians— Have the wonderful, satisfying knowledge that the Bible, which includes the book of Genesis, is the word of the one who was there from the very beginning. He is the only reliable witness of the past. And for our benefit, he has provided a written record so that we can know how everything that we see about us, including ourselves, we can know how we got here and how everything got here, how the universe got here. And that written record, for our benefit, is included in the book of Genesis, the book of creation. Well, it's also a book of beginnings. The very first word, in fact, in the book of Genesis is the Hebrew word berashith. And it means in the beginning. One word that means in the beginning. The Jews have even uh, referred to the book of Genesis as Bereshith in the beginning. Now, the word Genesis, the word Genesis, I actually told you wrong in the first lesson. I'm sorry for that. I assumed that because the Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew that the word Genesis was a Hebrew word which means beginnings or source or origin. But I found out that I was wrong, so I'm sorry. Correct this in your notes because it was also a homework question that said Hebrew word. It's a Greek word. I should have known that, but I didn't. Genesis is the Greek word for beginnings. Now you remember, some of you may not know this, but some of you do, that the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek because a lot of the Jewish people around the first century, they, well, they didn't know Hebrew. I mean, they, they all were speaking Greek primarily. So it was translated into Greek and that translation in the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. And so they get the word Genesis from the Greek word for beginnings. Now, Genesis means origin or source or beginning. Genesis is the record of the beginning of everything except who? <laughs> One thing, it's not the, or, the uh, record of the beginning of God, right? Because on, only God is eternal. So it's the beginning of everything except the eternal triune God himself. It is the book... It is in this book that we hear for the first time of creation. It's the first time we hear of man and of woman, of sin, of the Sabbath. First time we hear about marriage and the family. First time we hear about work, you know, labor. First time we hear of any kind of civilization and culture. First time we hear about music is in the book of Genesis. And of murder. It also is in Genesis that we first hear of rain, like like it's doing today. Never before was there reign until the time of Noah. And we first hear of sacrifices and of different languages and of races. And it's the first time we hear of redemption. There again in Genesis 3.15 and of the promised Messiah. Now, another special feature about Genesis is that it is a book of generations. One of the phrases that we will find occurs over and over again in this book is the phrase, these are the generations of. Now, the word generation is a translation of the Hebrew word. It is Hebrew. This time I made sure. The Hebrew word toledoth, which means offspring or descendants. Moses used this word it appears, in order to divide the book of Genesis into sections. So what we have are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Then we have the generations of Adam. We have the generations of Noah, the generations of the sons of Noah, the generations of Shem, one of the sons in particular. Then we have the generations of Terah, who was the father of who? Abraham. So actually that one is speaking of the generations of Abraham. Then we have the generations of Ishmael, the generations of Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. Now many people who teach the book of Genesis will use these generation divisions as their divisions for the book. If you have a commentary, very likely many of them have done that. And there's nothing wrong in doing that. It just won't be what we're doing. We won't be using those generations, and I have no reason. I'm just not going to be using those to divide the book up. Okay, it's also the book of patriarchs. Genesis presents for us the great history of the fathers of Israel who have subsequently become the fathers or the patriarchs, not only of Judaism but also of Christianity. We have, for example, the stories of Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, and Jacob and then Jacob's 12 sons. It's interesting to discover that the book of Genesis is essentially divided into two parts. The first 11 chapters constitute one division and then chapters 12 to 50 which is 39 chapters they, dis- they constitute the second division. Now, these two sections of the book of Genesis differ in several ways. Chapters 1 to 11 extend from the creation of the universe to an introduction uh, of Abraham. We are just introduced to Abraham in chapter 11. And then chapters 12 to 50 extend from Abraham all the way through to his great-grandson, Joseph. The first 11 chapters deal with some very major subjects such as creation, the fall, the flood, and then the Tower of Babel. Four main subjects, if you can remember those in the first section. There's also four main subjects in the second section, and they have to do with the, the, the lives of the patriarchs. We have the life of Abraham, then Jacob, I mean Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So chapters 1 to 11 deal with humanity in general. You know, creation, and then the fall, how all man, why, why we have the sin nature, and then the flood, and the flood explains a lot of our topography today and what's going, what went on in the world back then. And then uh, the Tower of Babel, why we have different races and languages and nationalities and that sort of thing. Whereas chapters 12 to 50 deal with Israel in particular, because then he narrows it down to the the godly line of Abraham. Now chapters 1 to 11 then are overall a record of failure on man's part however with god's call of abraham god made a new beginning remember it's a book of beginnings. so with abraham he makes a new beginning man's sin back here in the first part had brought about god's curse in the fall and that curse was on the whole world yet god's grace through his covenant with abraham brought blessing to the entire world Throughout the book of Genesis, we're going to find that this is true. When man does his worst and he fails miserably, then God in grace gives him a new beginning. And this cycle, I don't know if you can see that very well because it got absorbed in the paper, but this cycle in Genesis is what Dr. G. Campbell Morgan put like this. He said, the cycle we find in Genesis is that of generation—remember, it's a book of generations— generation, degeneration, and then God's grace causes regeneration. So that's what it is. The whole book is a cycle of generation, degeneration, and then regeneration. Cain murdered his brother Abel, right? Cain was of the generation of Adam, generation, then degeneration. He murders. And then God gives Seth So as to continue the godly line, so we have regeneration. All the earth became so evil that God purposed to cover it with water. And yet, he saved Noah, didn't he, and his family in an ark to carry on his plan of eventual redemption through his son. Men again rebelled against God at the Tower of Babel. But God called out a Gentile named Abram and his wife, Sarai, to give them a son in their old age so that, once again, his work of eventual salvation for all of the world could continue. So from beginning to end, the book of Genesis is the story of God's sovereignty and his grace. Whenever evil men rebelled and tried to destroy God's plans, or even when godly men, such as Noah and Abraham, even when godly men messed up, and made mistakes. God's sovereignty and His grace always overruled, and His divine purposes were always accomplished anyway. Now something else which makes the two divisions of Genesis noteworthy is the time factor which they each cover. The first eleven chapters cover a time span of some two thousand years, from the time of creation To the time of Abraham. Now, if you don't understand that, we'll get into it when we start discussing the theories of evolution and creationism, and when we talk about the gap theory, (laughs) that was part of her. Silly question last time in the skit, but when we talk about that, then you'll understand. But it's about 2,000 years from the time of creation to Abraham, while the second 39 chapters only cover a time span of 350 years from Abraham to Joseph. In fact, from the beginning of Genesis, chapter 1, through to chapter 12, Now, excuse me, from the beginning of Genesis chapter 12 all the way through the Old Testament and even on into the New Testament, right here is what I'm talking about, we find a time span of 2,000 years. So from the beginning of Abraham all the way through to the New Testament... The time of Jesus Christ, that is a time span of 2,000 years. So as far as time is concerned, we are one half of the way through the Bible when we finish Genesis chapter 11. Isn't that amazing? One half of the way, you know, time-wise, when we get to chapter 11. Now, of course, when I say New Testament, I'm not talking about the prophecies like we studied last Year In Revelation, when we go way into the future, I'm talking about the New Testament up to the first century, the time of Christ. But that's interesting. If you want to ask somebody a trivia question, time-wise, where is the halfway mark in the Bible? They'd be amazed to find out it's Genesis chapter 11. Now, what this should tell us is that God places his emphasis more on people and on nations and on the person of his son, Jesus Christ, than he does on the entire created universe. God's more interested, in other words, in Abraham than he is in the physical planet Earth and all of the the universe. He's more interested in Abraham than he is in the sun and the moon and all of the other planets. God's purpose, you see, for The creation, God's purpose for the whole universe was to have a place to put man. He so loved man that he purposed from the very beginning to send his son to die for him, knowing, of course, that man would fall into sin and death. So this should encourage us because it means that God places more value on each one of us than he does on his whole created universe, on things. We are—each one of us is more important to to him. If we had been—if any one of us had been the only one alive on earth, he still would have sent his son to die for us. So that should be encouraging. Okay, another thing—I've got to move right along here—is that another special feature of Genesis is that it is a book which begins God's grace toward man. Creation and life itself, with all of its privileges, are an act of God's grace— They're an act of God's unmerited favor toward mankind. You know, he didn't have to create us, did he? It's his grace that caused us to even exist. But his grace goes even further than that, because his grace includes his favor toward man, despite man's rebellion against him. God's grace reaches down, and it saves man from a destiny of darkness and corruption and death— To a life of light and hope and holiness and glory with Himself for all of eternity. And this salvation, this wonderful promised salvation, was launched almost immediately after man's fall into sin. And who was it who launched it? God. It was God who began to seek and to call out to Adam, right? Where art thou? Adam was not searching for God after he fell. What was he doing? He was hiding in his sin. So God became the seeking Savior from the very beginning, the one whose grace was ready to be demonstrated through his marvelous plan of salvation and redemption from the very beginning. He had planned it from the foundations of the earth. Throughout Genesis, God's grace is activated He sacrificed the life and the blood of an animal so as to secure those coats of skin to cover the shameful nakedness of Adam and Eve. A life had to be sacrificed. Blood had to be shed in order to cover their sinfulnesses. Sinfulness, right? So right away from the very beginning, we see blood. And all of this, of course, was a prophetic picture of, of the coming Lamb of God who would have to give his life and shed his blood in order to um, lay down his life for his sheep. Throughout Genesis, God, we will see God is ever seeking and he is ever crying out to men in essence the same words "Where where art thou over and over again. Where art thou, Abraham? I mean, even Abraham wandered away. And so over and over he is saying those words in order to, uh, he's always seeking man. And he's always there in his grace and mercy to cover man and forgive him of his sins and his failures. Even his chosen people, the nation of Israel and all the patriarchal fathers themselves, demonstrated time and time again their sinful tendency toward disobedience. See, we're not original in disobedience. It's been ever since the beginning. And, of course, disobedience always necessitated God's intervening grace, just as it does in our lives. The book is also a book which establishes God's covenants with man. Is somebody's phone ringing? Genesis tells us about God's very special relationship with men in his establishment of his first four covenant promises with man at, very, at four very critical times in history. And those four covenants are, you can see them up here, the Adamic covenant in which God meets man's most basic needs, the Adamic covenant, which was God's covenant with Adam, who, of course, represented the entire human race. And in this covenant, God promised redemption from sin. Remember, once again, Genesis 3.15. Then we'll talk about the Noahic covenant, which is God's covenant with Noah, who once again represented the entire human race, right? Because all men came from Noah's seed. Everybody else was wiped out. And the Noahic covenant, uh, in that covenant, God promised to preserve the human race. And then we have the Abrahamic covenant, which was God's covenant with Abraham, whereby God began a new race, the Jews, to be his chosen line of his godly people. Then the book is also a book which begins man's pilgrimage of faith, the godly line of God's people, Adam, Seth, well, Abel, and then Seth, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph they were all great men of faith in God they weren't perfect as we've already said they weren't perfect but they did believe God Hebrews 11 you know is the great faith chapter it's the hall of faith chapter in the Bible in Hebrews 11 verses 13 to 16 it says this speaking of the patriarchs they all died in faith not having received the promises but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. These men were men of faith. They didn't see the promises of God fulfilled in their lives, but they embraced them and they were persuaded of them. They knew that they would come to pass. They never, you know, actually saw the, the heavenly city, which they looked forward to, but they knew that it would be theirs. Now, in the book of Genesis, we first realize through the lives of these go- the godly men and women also, of course, women that we will be looking at, that life is a pilgrimage from birth through death and on into eternity. I mean, we don't—this this life is just a pilgrimage. We're not really citizens of this earth. We're just passing through. And this life, we either have a pilgrimage into the unknown, and that's for those who— do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not believe the Bible, and they don't accept its truths. And so their pilgrimage is into the unknown. I mean, they don't really know where they're going. We know where they're going, and it's not good, but they don't know where they're going. So life is either a pilgrimage into the unknown, or it's a pilgrimage of faith in God's promises. Just like the patriarchs. They didn't see the promises fulfilled, but they knew, they had faith that they would be. So Genesis is the story of men and women who walked the pilgrimage of faith. And we'll learn a lot from their stories as we look at them. Then the book is also a book of theological pictures. Although Genesis is not really a book which teaches us a whole lot of doctrine, you know, theology and teaching. Um, theological teaching yet almost every doctrine of our faith of the christian faith is deve- that is developed for us in the new testament is given to us in the book of genesis in seed form it is pictured for us or illustrated for us in the book of genesis let me give you an example of what i'm talking about for example we have the first clue as to the doctrine of the triune godhead in other words the f- first hint that God is one person and yet he is three people God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Where do we have that hint, that first clue? Well it actually comes in the very second word in the Hebrew Bible Elohim. Bereshith Elohim means in the beginning, God and we'll talk about the the fantastic name for God, Elohim and the fact that it's a plural for a singular person, but it's a plural ending, the I am ending. We'll talk about that next week. Right away, second word in the Bible, we're given a clue as to the triune Godhead. We also have another clue when we get to Genesis 1, 26, I believe is the verse, where God says to himself, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, he wasn't talking to the angels because we weren't made in the likeness of the angels. He was talking to himself. So we have a hint as to the doctrine of the Trinity. We're also presented with a doctrinal picture of justification by faith. And that we have when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And we have um, a picture of the necessity of being clothed in righteousness by God himself when he killed the animal and used the skins to cover Adam and Eve. And we have, in illustrated picture form, the entire doctrine of creation. We'll start to look at that, I said, Lord willing, next week. Then we also have the doctrine of redemption, Genesis 3.15 again, and the doctrine of salvation through the promised seed, um, which we've mentioned more than once, Genesis 3.15. The teaching of the divine incarnation, that God would become man. He would be supernaturally begotten. And what? It, remember I talked about that already, that the woman would have a seed. That speaks of a divine um, birth, that he would be the God-man. Then we have the doctrine of heaven, which is seen in the promised land. The doctrine of the believer's security, and that is seen in... Uh, Noah being, and his family being safely preserved in the ark. And the doctrine of sovereign election. God called out Abram of Ur of the Chaldees. That's the doctrine of sovereign election. He chose Ishmael instead of Isaac. He chose Jacob instead of Esau. We also have the doctrine of judgment given to us in the flood and also in the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and on Lot's wife. We have the doctrine of prayer over and over again as we look at these men and women praying. We have the doctrine of human law. We have the doctrine of the rapture in the first book of the Bible. Yes, seen in Enoch's translation to heaven without dying. And we have the doctrine of death and resurrection given to us in the account of Abraham's obedience in offering his son Isaac as a sacrifice and then receiving him back again we have there the doctrine of death and resurrection even though isaac didn't die it was a picture of the death and resurrection of christ and then we have the doctrine of christ's coming exaltation and his acceptance by israel his brethren we have that whole picture given to us in the account of joseph the life of joseph also in the prophecy that Jacob, his father, gave in Genesis 49.10. And then we have the doctrine of the priesthood of Christ, that he is our great high priest praying for us. And that's seen in the mysterious character of who? Who knows? Yes, Melchizedek. I mean, there's a lot of really fascinating characters in Genesis, and Melchizedek is one of them. And so on. you get the picture? A lot of doctrines, they're not spelled out like they are in the book of Romans, (laughs) but we have them in picture form in the book of Genesis. And all of these teachings, which are expanded on in the rest of the Bible, are given to us here in many illustrations in Genesis. And this, I believe, stands as great proof of the divine authorship of the entire Bible. Because who but God himself, the one who knows the end from the beginning, who else could have revealed in picture form in seed form what is later expanded and amplified in the rest of the scripture many 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 years later I don't think that anything so demonstrates the one mas- that one master mind mind penned the entire bible than the fact that all that is brought to ultimate fulfillment in the book of revelation that we looked at in the last two years, was presented first and predicted first way back long before in the book of Genesis. One mastermind had to write the whole Bible. I mean, you just look, for example, at the life of Joseph himself, just that one example, and how perfect he pictures the life of Christ. And all your doubts about who wrote the Bible should just vanish. All right, and speaking of that, it is also a book of Christological pictures. We mentioned earlier how Christ is presented throughout the Bible. He's found in every book from Genesis to Revelation because he is the person on whom the entire Bible is centered. He's not only the author of the Scripture, but he is the theme and the subject of the Scripture. Without Jesus Christ, you know there would be no Bible. Because he not only wrote it, but without him there would be no reason for a Bible. He himself, remember, said that all the scripture speaks of him. That's what he told his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he explained this same truth to many of his followers who gathered together in the upper room after his resurrection. He said to them in Luke 24:44 that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, in other words in the books of Moses, and in the prophets, that's all the other prophets of the Old Testament, and in the Psalms. Right there you have the whole Old Testament, the books of Moses, and the other prophets, and the Psalms. He said all things must be must be fulfilled concerning me. And then Luke himself added these little words of commentary in verse 45 of luke 24 he said then opened he in other words then christ opened up their understanding that they might understand the scriptures how do you understand the scriptures you understand them by seeing christ throughout all of them that's you really if you come to the bible not looking for Jesus Christ, you really won't understand them. And it will be boring, and you will put the book down before much time has passed. Especially when you get into some of those what we think are boring areas. But when you see Christ and you look for Christ in everything, the book comes alive and it becomes exciting. Christ probably explained not only the direct prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures, such as a virgin would conceive and have a son, you know, Isaiah seven 14, and that he would be born in Bethlehem, Eph- Ephrata, and Micah 5, 2, a lot of those direct prophecies. Um, but he would also have included... And an explanation of the many hidden pictures and what we call types, T-Y-P-E-S, prophetic pictures of himself. And there are many, many of them in the Old Testament and many of them in the book of Genesis. Some of the types of Christ and his salvation, which we find in Genesis and that we will be looking at, are Adam himself. Adam is a type of Christ Adam's rib is a picture of Christ and his church. We will look at Adam's covering, in other words, that animal skin, as a type of Christ, and it is. We'll look at Abel as a type of Christ, and Abel's lamb that he offered to God is a type of Christ, and Abel's death is a type of Christ. He was murdered by his own brother. And then the promise of the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, of course, is a picture of Christ. And Noah is a picture of Christ. And Noah's ark is a picture of Christ. And so is the door on the ark. (laughs) And then Noah's dove. Did you ever hear that one? The dove is a picture of Christ. And then the mysterious high priest Melchizedek is a beautiful picture of Christ. The son of promise, Isaac. Is a picture of Christ, and Isaac's ram is a picture of Christ, and also Isaac's bride is a picture of the church, Christ and his church. And of course, the beautiful picture that we have of Christ seen throughout the entire life of Joseph, who went from pit to pinnacle. All kinds of types, and there'll be even others. Even when we look at the creation story, we're going to see a picture of Christ in it. Then, lastly, special feature, last special feature is that Genesis is the book of Israel's beginning. From the 12th chapter on, Genesis is a history of Israel's beginning. This beginning started in seed form when Abram, he used to be called Abram, then his name was changed to Abraham, when Abram was called out of Ur of the Chaldees. Now, Abram was a Gentile. Did you ever think about that? He was a Gentile, called out of Ur of the Chaldees, but he became the one to father the Hebrew nation and the Jewish people. He was God's chosen best vessel to father His chosen nation, which would become a witness to the world, and which would one day give birth to that promised seed of the woman, the promised Savior of the world. Well, very quickly, um, I'm just—I'm not going to go into detail a lot about this, but I'll put up a chart. And, um, well, one thing I would like to explain, because this is kind of interesting. The first, the first chapter of the book of Genesis gives to us, it describes a perfect world, which God created. You know, in the beginning, he created and designed this perfect world for man. He placed this world and all of its diverse living creatures under whose dominion? Adam's dominion, man's dominion. Now, if man had not sinned, he would have continued to reign over that perfect world, not only for his own good, but also, of course, for God's glory. However, as we know only all too well, man did sin, and of course the consequence was that he brought death and sin to not only himself, but to his world. You know, the whole world groans. It's all under the curse. Yet God would not be defeated in his purpose, even though sin and death have intruded this world for a period of time. As we learned last year in our study of the book of Revelation, all that God had planned at the very beginning will ultimately be fulfilled, won't it? He will once again have a perfect world. Uh, That really won't come about during the millennial kingdom. The curse will be reversed, but sin will still be in the millennial kingdom. We talked about that. If you don't understand, you can get the tapes. But the perfect world will be restored when God um, creates the new heaven and the new earth. The earth will be uh, restored to its original perfection in the new earth, and it will continue eternally. It will be, that will be the eternal state in the new earth and the new heaven. The sin and the curse will be forever removed. There will be no more sin. Death will be extinct. So we can learn a lot about the final future eternal world by a study of Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because in many ways they are the same. But let me throw this question out and see if anybody can get it. There is one significant difference between the world that we will read about in Genesis 1 and 2 and the world that will exist in the eternal state in the new heaven and the new earth. There is one significant distinction. Would anybody like to venture a guess? No sun, no ocean, yes? Karen? Karen? Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there will be no sin at all. And that's, that's sort of getting at the point what I'm going to talk about. The first world was prepared as a place for man in a probationary innocence. It was perfect and flawless... God made it and he looked at everything and said it was good it was perfect and flawless and yet who was divinely permitted to enter into that perfect flawless world Satan was allowed to enter into it will Satan be allowed to enter into the eternal state no he will be bound forever in the lake of fire also in that first probationary world a man was given one restriction he was basically given a one commandment, wasn't he? And that was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, this perfect first world, therefore, was a probationary world in which man was going to be tested. In the final world, man will have already been tested. <laughs> And he will have already experienced sin and death, and he will have already experienced the knowledge of good and evil and the curse. And he will have experienced, in addition, God's grace and God's mercy and God's redemption and renewal. So he will be able to glorify those attributes of God, which otherwise he would never have understood if he had only lived in the first perfect world and never sinned, he couldn't glorify God for his attributes of grace and mercy and unconditional love. He couldn't praise and really worship Jesus Christ as his savior, right? So this is the way in which the first world is different from the second world. Now there are a lot of comparisons between the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation. These girls shot out a couple of them I'll go over them really quickly. They are all in your notes, but it is very interesting, and that was one of the reasons why I thought about teaching the book of Genesis since we just did Revelation, and it's fresh in your minds for those of you who were here, and you'll see how neat they compare one to another. In Genesis, the tree of life was guarded. In Revelation, the tree of life will be available all throughout all of eternity. In Genesis, the first marriage was marred, wasn't it? I'm sure they had a lot of marital problems after after the fall. It's your fault. No, it's your fault. <laughs> but in the book of Revelation, we found out that the last marriage, which is the marriage of the marriage supper of the lamb or the marriage of Christ with his church that that is going to be a wonderful marriage no flaws no problems forever and ever in the first book genesis satan temp- was the tempter in the last book we'll find we see that satan is uh, cast forever into the lake of fire first book death came into the world in the last book there will be no more death there is no more death in the first world a uh, first book um, there is evil continually. As we read through Genesis, we'll see evil and evil popping its head up over and over again. In Revelation, we find that there's no, um, nothing that defileth. The earth is cursed in Genesis. There's no more curse in Revelation. There's daily sorrow in Genesis. No more sorrow in Revelation. Sweat on the face in Genesis. Tears are wiped away in Revelation. They eat the herbs of the field in Genesis, and in Revelation, remember the, the trees that line the, um, the river that flows out of the throne of God is full of 12 different kinds of fruit. Each tree has 12 different kinds of fruit. Then, in Genesis, there's coats of animal skins. In Revelation, we find fine linen, white and clean. Genesis, uh, man is banished from the garden. In Revelation, he has free entry to the garden city, the new Jerusalem, forever and ever. In Genesis, Babylon is built. In Revelation, Babylon is destroyed forever. In Genesis, the Redeemer is promised. And in Revelation... Karen, the Redeemer, is present forever and ever. And there are more comparisons in your notes, so make sure you read them. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this wonderful book of Genesis. Thank you for all that we look forward to learning. It is so full of so much truth and so many exciting stories of people. And I know that we're going to learn a lot as we look at it. And most of all, I hope that we'll... We'll see the Lord Jesus Christ on every page and that we'll be excited about him even more than we are. And I pray especially that if somebody doesn't know him, that, that she would come to know him during this study and even this day or this week as she does her homework. Father, we love you. We ask that you go before us this week and help us to be witnesses for you in this wicked world and save people from their sins and from eternal judgment by our witness of the gospel message we love you and now we just pray that you'll bring us all back safely next week for we pray in christ's name amen